Hi there, Kim Schmidt, Executive Editor of Farm Equipment here. Welcome to Farm Equipment's podcast series, Our Dealer Stories, which dives into farm equipment dealers and their unique stories. In today's episode, the first sit-down with a dealership from Canada, editor and publisher Mike Lesseter interviews the 34-year-old Landis Stankovich of Troshu Motors in central Alberta, whose path into the family dealership took a meandering one that included professional hockey dreams, an Ivy League education, studies in England as a Rhodes Scholar, and a burgeoning career at a global consulting firm. In this different kind of episode, Landis will tell you his story and a lot more. The large single-store Echo dealership, which was founded by his grandfather and great-uncle in 1947, is led today by his father, Jack. The father and son both ended up in the dealership in a roundabout way. There are parallels to their paths and also their distinctive differences in operational approach. I said, yeah, I worked hard, received a hockey scholarship, won the road scholarship, headed off from Princeton to Oxford, worked for McKinsey. So at age 28, I quit McKinsey high-energy, high-ambition job in downtown Calgary, and I moved back into my parents' basement, started working at a dealership, same job I had in high school. Another way, another way I can tell a story is that, yeah, I went back to the family business, and my direct competitors are publicly traded companies on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So all of a sudden you start to think about what's involved in strategy and competition and, and managing a business that's going up head-to-head with you know, big conglomerates, and all of a sudden that doesn't look too far removed from being a business consultant. That was Landis recalling his story path into the dealership from big business and the challenge that he wanted to be a part of. Before we begin on the conversation with Landis recorded at the WIDA International Dealer Conference, a nod to sponsor HBS Systems, a multi-generational company that for over 30 years has provided leading edge systems and software technology designed specifically for ag and construction equipment dealers. Okay, let's get things going. Here's the Our Dealer Story conversation with Landis Stankovich of Social Motors in Central Alberta. I know John was excited. Your name came up because you said, have you met Landis yet? He said to me, this is a really good story and we need young, highly bright people coming back into the industry. Right. And so that, that's what it yeah. triggered the recommendation. Uh, well, my name is Landis Stankovich. Uh, I'm the third generation at Trosha Motors. So Trosha Motors was a cockshut and Ford dealership purchased by my grandpa in 1947. So we've had the business for 72 years and we've been focused on agriculture for the last 40. And we're still family owned. We're a single store in Trosha, Alberta. And our, our goal every day is to make sure we provide outs- outstanding customer service. And uh, we have a great team that does that. That's kind of what motivates us and that's our passion. So we've been doing that for 72 years and plan to keep keep doing it. What's your role with the company? So I'm in management. I don't have a formal title. When I first came back, I tongue-in-cheek gave myself the title Continuous Improvement Specialist. So I came from the consulting world. I used to work with McKinsey and Company for a couple of years, uh, which is a global consulting firm. They work with, with big companies. And so I came back and I just come from consulting, so I thought, why don't I do an internal consulting project? So I'll work on all of our biggest problems, try to basically make improvements across the company. So that was the original thought when I came back and so called me the continuous improvement specialist. And since then, I've gotten more maybe into just basic management. I I don't focus just on consulting projects. I do a lot of operational stuff now and and management stuff. You could maybe call me a business manager. I'm in management. The brands that you can carry. Yeah, so Agco would be our major line. We also carry Versatile and Kubota. Those would be our two next largest lines. We have Morris, we have a, a bunch of other short lines as well. 
uh, Elmer's, Salford, um, Outback, Raven, Topcon, uh, a lot of supporting brands, but our biggest by far would be Ico and then Versatile and Kubota. And the town that you were in is? Trochu, Alberta. Trochu, Alberta. Yeah, it's in, uh, it's in Western Canada, small town, a thousand people. It's been a thousand people as long as I can remember. A lot of family-owned farms that are up around 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 acres. Uh, but we still got 2,000 acre, 5,000 acre guys as well. But definitely undergoing that shift that a lot of rural Canada and rural America is undergoing slowly over time where you go from, you know, a single homestead, you know, 100 years ago, 160 acres and just consolidating slowly over time. And, and so we've seen even just in my lifetime that shift from, you know, the average farm being maybe 500 acres to maybe our average farm size now is 2,000 acres. So undergoing that shift for sure. And, and it will, and that's obviously, I believe, going to continue uh, just with the economic forces that are hitting farms, right? I mean, mechanization, labor is a, a bottleneck. And um, so it's, they're just going to kind of slowly keep consolidating. And we're experiencing that too in our area. Tell us the customer base yeah. you serve. So I talked a little bit about the size of the farms. You know, the average farm is probably 2,000 acres right now, and they're slowly consolidating. And we go as big as 10, 15,000, and still a small. There's a few hobby farmers still with only 500 acres maybe, which that's, in Canada that's becoming a hobby farm to have 500 acres. So uh, really it's focused on grainland mostly. So canola is a huge crop for us. That's probably our biggest cash crop, most profitable crop. Wheat, barley. A little bit of rye once in a while, a little bit of oats here and there. Some guys are experiencing, uh, experimenting with beans, so fava beans, soy maybe in the south, a little south of us. There is a little bit of cattle, but in the BSE crisis of 02 and 03, we really lost a lot of our cattle. So the guys that are left in the game are the guys that are really passionate about it because I think a lot of the bigger grain farmers have looked at the economics and said, I'd rather go down to Phoenix for the winter. So we, we don't have as many feedlots and as many cattle farmers in the area as we used to. And then there are some dairy farms within a, maybe a 50 mile radius of us, but they tend to be clustered and, and there's not a lot of them. Uh, I wouldn't say that our, our customer base for any of the dealerships in our area is, 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 contains a lot of dairy farms, but they're there. But really grain is the, is the big thing. Your cedar business big up by you? Yeah, it, it is really big. We're a Morris dealer, so we don't have the market share that Burgo does. Burgo it really has a lot of the market share in Western Canada, um, it, but there it's it's a big business for sure. I mean, you've got big drills out there, you know, 70, 80, pushing 90 feet wide, um, big big huge tanks, and it would be uh, it would be for sure a, a, a big business and. Uh, and a bit of a bit of a scary one that air seizure business too because of the the changes in technology that happen so quickly. But it's it's definitely a big component of the business. Combines, I mean, huge combine area. It's Western Canada. Custom combining isn't really an option because we have such a tight window and it's so variable. You know, we start harvest probably mid-August and it, we get up snow on the ground by October. And if it's if it's wet in September, all of a sudden you're getting quite nervous because you know it limits the, the amount of uh, days that you've got to go because if it's too wet uh, you, you, you can't go I mean if it's raining obviously you can't go so owning your own combine is, is huge in our market uh, custom combines not really an option swathers were a big part of our market with canola it used to be swath but with the move to straight cut uh, straight cutting canola the, the draper side of the swathing businesses has really diminished that we still do have a little bit of hay west of us in, in, in the wetter country closer to the mountains. So there's, there's some hay headers out there. Uh, Four-wheel drive tractors are huge to pull the cedars, to, to pull um, rollers, to pull tillage. Um, 
you know, most of our farming is still is zero till now with, with spraying and, and, and direct seeding. But we've been doing zero till so long, guys are starting to think about working the land a little bit more, almost thinking it's just been not, it hasn't been tilled for long enough. So, um, yeah, so four-wheel drives, combines, seeders, swathers, a little bit self-propelled sprayers because of the zero till farming. The machine that's used the most on the farm these days is the self-propelled sprayer. It's, they're making four, sometimes five passes with that just to control the weeds, to control the, you know, the fungicide. Or to control the fungus. Do you sell a lot of self-propelled? Yeah, we do. I mean, we were a huge spray coop dealer uh, you know, with our eco heritage, uh, and now we're a pretty big rogator dealer as well. So, so we do. No-till farming. That's what my dad started our company on. He's the published no-till farmer since 1972. Oh wow. Yeah. So, no, the guys called zero-till. Yeah. Call it direct seeding. But. Yeah, we we really saw that shift about 1999, 2000. In 2002, in Western Canada, there was a terrible drought. Uh, it affected everybody. It affected us. It affected the farmers, the dealers. And I think um, it was so dry. I think that was a wake-up call to a lot of guys that we really have to get into conserving moisture and, and into some best practices here. And I think you know we really saw a shift in those late 90s and early 2000s to zero till. I can't think of anybody that doesn't anymore that's a serious farmer in our area. A quick break in the action to invite you to our annual Dealership Mind Summit. Check out this unique management event for farm equipment dealers only at www.dealershipmindssummit.com. It's a quick hit, two-day mastermind style summit that connects you to your peers of all colors. Come participate and learn from the very best minds in the ag machinery dealer world, all seeking solutions to your same challenges www.dealershipmindssummit.com I'm so interested in hearing about this. I'm going to move this up sure. later on. But yeah. I was looking at some things on you last night. And okay. I learned hockey player yeah. and road scholar and yeah. Ivy League. And yeah. Tell me about all this. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll try to give you the short version because there's a lot of things that happened along the way. So growing up at Troshu, I was a avid hockey player. Loved the sport, played all the time, played after school, I mean, played on organized teams, but would go to the arena and just skate for hours and hours, and probably deep down inside wanted to make the NHL like any young Canadian hockey player. But I was also a pretty good student at school. I loved school, took a lot of pride in doing well there, loved learning. Uh, I, I still do, I'm obviously not in school anymore, but it, I, I do take advantage of learning opportunities whenever I can. I mean, that's why I'm here at the WIDA conference, for example. Growing up, loved hockey, loved school, not too bad at both of those, worked hard at both of those. And my dad had a customer. His name was Al Barlow. And Al Barlow's son went to Harvard and played hockey there on a scholarship. Now, there's some technicalities around how Ivy League schools treat scholarships, but let's just call it a hockey scholarship. So that inspired me, and I thought, wow, I'd love to do something like that. So through high school, I worked as hard as I could to try to make something like that happen. Played AAA hockey. I played junior hockey, wrote my SATs, and ended up recruited to Princeton. So I, I went down on a visit to, to the Princeton campus, met with the coach, met with the players. They had 15 Canadian kids on their team out of 25. Just fell in love with the, the university, the, the hockey guys, the whole experience, and, and committed there and ended up going there. 
it's funny because at about that time, that was about 02, 03, my, my first year down there was 04. So the drought in our area had just happened. And I remember thinking, I will never be in the egg equipment business. What a terrible business. Who would want to be in this business? You have no control. It doesn't rain. I can't buy crop insurance for the dealership. You know, I, this, is, this is terrible. <laughs> I remember thinking that. So I went down to, to Princeton, played four years there, uh, studied mechanical engineering. Um, so between mechanical engineering and hockey, I was a busy guy. And uh, again, kind of random thing happened. One of the guys on the team, a couple years ahead of me, said, you should think about applying for the Rhodes Scholarship. You, you fit the criteria well. Uh, because back then, and especially still in Canada, the original intention of the Rhodes Scholarship was for someone that was a leader, for someone that was strong in academics, and someone that was an athlete. So they've kind of taken the emphasis away from the athletic side, especially in, in the States. But uh, in Canada, it's still, still part of the criteria, and it's, it's certainly part of the original will. It, 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 right in Cecil Rhodes, who's the, the founder of the Rhodes Scholarships, right in his will, it, it talks about you know, physical vigor and um, you know, exemplifying that through s- sports. So I was able to interview and win the, the scholarship, which the Rhodes Scholarship a lot of people have heard of it, maybe don't know what it means exactly, but so you go to Oxford, it's a scholarship specifically to Oxford. So I went over there, it was time for a shift from engineering. Um, I went over there and studied economics. Uh, actually, the degree specifically is called philosophy, politics, and economics. And I focused probably 60 to 70% of my courses on economics, and then the remainder were philosophy. So I studied there for two years and got another undergraduate degree. That was in 2010 that I graduated. And through my experience over there, ended up at McKinsey and Company. McKinsey is a worldwide business management consulting firm. So they have offices everywhere, they, but they happen to have an office in Calgary too. They work with Fortune 500 companies and they, they work on a lot of high level, big strategic stuff, trying to improve companies' performances. I mean, they work across all aspects of, of business, corporate uh, finance, um, HR, strategy, operations uh, just looking to make improvements in businesses and and they're working with such big businesses they're trying to make you know big improvements they they're going in and trying to save save companies or, or, or grow companies revenues by you know millions if not billions of dollars so spent two and a half years with them uh, mostly working in the oil patch in Calgary uh, with oil patch clients and that was about the time that my dad um, and his business partner Rich Metting uh, and my, my dad's name is Jack Sink, which he's been in the business forever. Like I said, we're th- on third generation. Jack and Rich decided to build a new facility, and this was pretty big for us because we were still operating out of our building that was built in the 30s. Our parts and our sales was in this old building that was built in the 30s. We had purchased it in 1947 when we bought the company. And then we had purchased shops around the town, so we were all spread out, and we had about two or three small shops throughout the town as we'd, as we'd grown. So they decided to build a building, and consolidate it into one spot, consolidate all these different shops. And that turned out to be about a $5 million project. And they're a single store, and they'd grown pretty rapidly. You know, they'd gone from 10 employees back in 2002, that, that drought time, they, and they were approaching 25 when they were building this building in 2012. And I was looking at everything, looking at the numbers, and just thinking, boy, this is really going to take this business to the next level and I think they're going to need some help and I was at McKinsey and I was working probably 80 to 90 hours a week I mean that's one thing about working for one of those consulting firms you're, wor- you're working a lot and sometimes traveling as well 
I'm a business consultant. Why am I spending 80 to 90 hours a week working on someone else's business, like a Fortune 500 company, and helping them improve their business and doing all this analysis and understanding where their problems are and where their opportunities are and helping them grow it? McKinsey, which is a great company, I, I, in two and a half years I learned more than I probably would have learned in 10 years working some places between the training and the experience. But, uh, so that was, it was a great experience, but I thought, why am I doing this over here? We're helping somebody else when my dad's just decided to invest $5 million in his own business, and I think he needs help. And so thought first came into my head, and I just, once it did, I couldn't get it out of my head. And so around the end of 2012, I decided to quit McKinsey, and I was also tired. Uh, you know, 80 to 90 hours a week is, is a lot of work, so I was looking for a change anyway. So um, there was a few factors that came together, but... I quit McKinsey in the end, at the end of 2012, and I went back to my dad's business. And at first, I thought uh, I was pretty naive. I thought, oh well, I'll just do this like a consulting project. Well, we'll have this all figured out in six months. So yeah. I went back thinking, okay, I'll be here for six months. Make sure they're on the right track with this new building. Make sure if there's any you know risk, uh, we've we've taken care of it. If there's any opportunities, we got those figured out. And if there's any problems, we'll solve those, and they'll be all set up with this new building. And then I'll look for my next job, maybe move back to the city. Um, because our small town is about an hour and a half away from the big city, Calgary. So, well, that was, I guess that was a little naive because about five months in, I thought, okay, <laughs> this isn't going to take just five months. There's, there's lots of opportunity to, to make improvements here and, and to grow. And, and this building is, is going to be a huge shift for this business and, and just the way we do business. And, and my dad and Rich are, are going to need a lot of help here just to make it all work. And, and so that was six years this December. That, and... Yeah, here we still are, and instead of 25 employees, we're at 42 now. We've grown our service business and our parts business dramatically in the new building. I mean, bringing everybody together and being able to hire more employees with more shop space has just provided the opportunity to, to double, in most cases, those, those two businesses, roughly speaking. So, And our whole goods business still continues to go along quite well. I mean, there was the downturn from 013 and 14. Everybody's experienced a downturn, but we've, we've come quite well through that, and we're still selling quite a bit. So, and, and the one thing I say to everybody, and this is, this is the best part about it, is that every single day since I moved back, since I quit McKinsey, I, I cannot think of a day that I did not want to get up and go to work. And when I was at McKinsey or, or previous jobs outside of the dealership, you know, when I was an engineering summer student, that wasn't always the case. You know, when the weekend ended at McKinsey and you went back to your 80-hour work week, you thought, oh, I wish the weekend was still going. But at, at the dealership, I can't think of a single day that I haven't wanted to go to work. So, not that there haven't been frustrating moments or frustrating days, but I've wanted to be there every single day. The man that loves his job never works a day in his life, right? And that's what it feels like. They were, they were talking about Generation Z and Millennials yesterday. You know, they don't see, it's not about work-life balance. It's not about the distinction between work and life. It's, everything's just life. And, and that's kind of how I feel. It's, I just, I've just enjoyed life. You know, I, I, I go to work, but, but it's part of my life, and I enjoy it at the dealership. So I've, I've met Jack before at the Versatile yeah. dealer meeting. Had, had dinner with him one night. If you take us back in time and kind of encapsulate the history and what you know about Grandpa, how Grandpa yep. got involved, and then how Jack, sure. you know, tell us about the history of the company. Yeah, so we, we purchased the business in 1947. And at the time, it was a Cockshut dealership and a Ford dealership, and it was called Adams Motors, owned by the Adam family. They're, they're still in the area, not the direct descendants of the owner, he moved, but his brother and his, descend his brother's descendants are still around the Troche area. And we renamed it Troche Motors in 1947. And it was my grandpa and it, his brother, my great uncle Aaron, 
Uh, so John and Aaron Stankovich purchased it. And they had some brothers that also farmed, uh, and their, their dad was still alive at that time, my great-grandpa, and he was involved. And so it was kind of the thought that, okay, well, these brothers will farm, and these brothers will run the dealership, and that'll help support the brothers farming, because they'll buy their farm equipment from the dealership, and that'll be some guaranteed customers for the dealership. So it just seemed to make sense. And back then, every small town dealership had, or every small town had multiple dealerships. Mm -hmm. You know, we were cockshut. There was a Massey dealer. There was a Case dealer. There was an International dealer. Um, there was a John Deere dealer. So I think at one time there were seven dealerships in our small town. Uh, and today we're down to, to two. There's also a John Deere dealer in our, our town. So they purchased the dealership in 1947 and ran it. Cockshut became white when white purchased them in Minneapolis and all over. We also picked up the Massey franchise later on. But in 1977, my grandpa had a heart attack and my dad was just finishing school, he had, he had been training to be an accountant. And he'd been, actually he'd been articling. And he didn't really enjoy articling. So there's, it's funny, there's some echoes in history if you, if you listen to the story and you listen yeah. to my story. Yeah. So um, my, my dad was articling he, to be an accountant uh, and he didn't like that. And my grandpa had a heart attack. He was okay, but he couldn't work for a few months. So at that time my dad thought, well, I either go back to the dealership and keep it going uh, or, or it's going to be done because there's no one to lead it. My, my grandpa was the GM. Um, they only had about six or seven employees. My dad had stayed in pretty close contact with the dealership working there in the summers and weekends while he went to school. And he knew that if he didn't go back with my grandpa out for two months, it was just a small dealership, six people, it was probably just going to wind down. So he decided to quit his job, stop his career uh, that was going to take him to being an accountant, and move back and run the dealership. So... He moved back in 1977, and about that time they decided to just focus just on ag. They, so they dropped the Ford line, and we were white at that time. And then throughout the 80s, we, we picked up Massey. There were some tough times in the 80s. I think white went broke two or three times. Then Massey went broke. We were in, I guess we were in Albatross for some brands for a while there because we, we, we lived through white going broke two times and finally picked up Massey and thought, oh, here we go, and then Massey went broke. So we had White, we had Massey, um, maybe a few short lines around that. And then Echo, basically in the early 90s, purchased both of those brands. And so it was a natural fit for us to become an Echo dealer. Mm -hmm. And so um, through Cockshut White and Echo, our, our history with Echo or its, its ancestors goes back right all the way to 1947. So Echo's kind of always been our, our main line. And, and then we picked up Kubota and, and, uh, in the 90s, and we've picked up other lines through that time. Morris picked up Versatile in the early 2000s when it went back to Bueller, and it, when it was spun off from New Holland. And so, yeah, my dad's been running it since 77, and then, as, you know, and then I came back in about 2000, late 2012, early 2013. And actually, my sister came back in 2014, just after we moved into the new building, after it was constructed. She, I guess she, she was teaching, and I guess she looked at it and thought, well, gee, if Landis gets to come back, then I get to come back, yeah. too. <laughs> so she moved back. You and did some lead blacking there for her. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think she's enjoyed it a lot, too. So. Good. What does she do there? She would be our, uh, her title would be probably sales coordinator, so she handles all our finance contracts, basically all of our marketing, supports the sales guys in the sales process. Sales coordinator would be uh, would be the best title for. Her. I mean, like any family member in a small dealership, you can't really draw a box around the job. I mean, there's so many other things that you do too, um, but that would be how. That would be we'll get back to Landis and the Troshu story in a minute, but first a word of thanks to HBS Systems, the sponsor of this series. To learn more about HBS's equipment dealership management systems, visit www.hbssystems.com. 
Now back to the story of Landis Stankovic of Troshu Motors. So the, the echo that you talked about here, it, looked, it, it sounds to me like, so Grandpa was in the dealership, but was not demanding, encouraging, insisting Jack to come no, back No, absolutely not. No, I mean, you gotta think, they were a small, this was the 70s, they were cockshots. They weren't the powerhouse brand. Um, they were only about six or seven people. I mean, it was my grandpa, his brother, his brother's wife, my Aunt Margaret, uh, my Uncle Hank, who was a, married to my grandpa's sister, uh, you know, a couple other staff that maybe weren't family, but probably were treated like family and felt like family, and that was it. So, and, and they were all a little older, I think. So um, I, I think they probably were, had plans to eventually just wind it down, and it wouldn't have been this. It wouldn't have been as soon as it looked like it might happen because my grandpa had the heart attack, but I don't think there were a lot of growth plans. My, my dad is the one that came back and really grew the business. He, he got aggressive. Um, you know, the late 70s were good years, so we had some good years, but then the 80s hit, and if he had been in the business to make a great return on assets, right, or, or a great return on equity, and, and he was trained as an accountant, so he, he didn't know what these things yeah. meant. If he had been in the business to do that, I think he would have shut it down or he, he, would, have, he would have left or gave up or, or let, it, let it go broke in, in the many times that it probably came close. But he had a passion for it. Uh, I mean, my dad certainly fits. Earlier I said how I, I feel like I haven't worked a day in my life. Well, since I came back to the dealership. Since my dad has really worked at the dealership for most of his life, I think he probably feels the same way. Um, he just loves it. He loves the customers. He loves the staff. He loves the deal making, he loves selling. Sometimes I think he loves used equipment. <laughs> He's built to do that. He's built to be a farm equipment dealer. He came back because he wanted to, because he didn't want to see the business stop. He loved it and he took a lot of risks in the 80s and hung on through some pretty tough times and grew it because he saw that you had to grow. I mean, you, you know, there's not many six person dealerships left today, certainly. And so he grew it. He acquired the Massey line when the local dealer dropped it and was getting out of the business. So one of the other dealerships in our town was a Massey versatile dealer and, and they shut down because they just thought, ah, we don't want to order anymore. We don't want to, we don't want to grow our business anymore. We don't see the future here. And my dad did. And so he, he picked up Massey. Tough times. Massey went broke too. Hung in there. Agco formed. There was some, some hope there and, and has grown really with Agco a, a lot in the last 28 years. And, and we, like I said, now we're 42 people. Oh, I mean, I, I haven't adjusted it for inflation, but we're, you know, 50 times the business that we were, you know, back then. So, yeah, so kind of a, kind of a, cool, yeah. a cool story for my dad. He, he definitely has a passion for the business. And, and you, it doesn't seem that you were predestined to, to come back to the dealership, or, or was No, that? no. Like I said, uh, in 2002, I remember thinking, who in their right mind would ever want to get in this business? This is terrible. I mean, it was a drought. We lost a ton of money that year. It was pretty stressful. And I just thought, I mean, I, I, sometimes I look at the egg dealership industry and I go, how many things are out of your control for whether you succeed? Because I'm a hockey player, I'm an academic. And, and in hockey, there's some things out of your control for sure. There's bounces, but you can control how hard you work, whether you work out, whether you're, you know, make sure you're in shape, you know, don't turn it over at the blue line, dump it in if you have to, be smart with the puck. You, you can control a lot of things and you're gonna have a pretty successful outcome, either individually or as a team. Same with academia. I mean, if you study, if you put the time in, 
you're going to probably be a decent student if you've got any sort of natural ability. You go to the ag business and now all of a sudden your success is dependent upon commodity prices, which you have not a lot of control over. Uh, you can hedge, sure, but you know if they're going down in the, in the long run, you're, you're going to go ride that. Uh, you're dependent on input prices. You're dependent on the weather. You're dependent on uh, even you know farmers and their you know the, where where they're thinking about the business. I mean, there's there's so many things that are out of your control to a certain extent. And I mean, the last one about farmers being out of your control and unpredictable is a little bit of a joke. But just it's there's a lot that can go wrong, and it's out of your control, and you might not be successful even though you've done everything right. In, in the ag dealership business, whereas that's not really the case in some of the other endeavors of my life. So I remember thinking, well, who would ever go into this business? It's so risky and you, you do everything right and you won't succeed. And it wasn't really until a lot later, 10, 12 years later, when I knew a little bit more about how business worked, when the business had been stronger for, for a few years, because we've, you know, 2002 was the, the low point and we haven't seen anything that bad since. Um, so, you know, the business was stronger. I knew a little bit more about business. It had grown. It just became more interesting because uh, even though I still believe that about it being, you can do everything right and sometimes you won't be assured of success because of all those factors in farm and far farming and, and farm equipment that you don't control, now I saw that more as a challenge. How can you prepare yourself to deal with all those factors so that you still can be successful, that you still can be around for the long term for your customers and for your staff. Um, and, and I mean, it's not, not something I've mastered. I mean, I, I, I hope we don't go into a low commodity prices, high interest rate, you know, adverse weather event time anytime soon, but it's something that's on my mind. You know, how, how, how would we be prepared for that time? You know, is our used inventory in the right spot? Have we got enough equity in the business to be, to be ready for that? Have we got, is there a way we can hedge against that? Um, all those, all those different factors I, I see as a challenge. And, and now I think I have the experience and I'm a little older to maybe, to maybe help with those, right? I learned, I learned a lot in my 10 years away. How, how old are you today? 34. So when you were a kid and, and if it wasn't the NHL that had you consumed, what, what were you thinking you might do professionally when you were? Oh, outside of the NHL, uh, which I always knew was a long shot. I mean, that was a dream. Um, outside of the NHL, I didn't really know. Some days I say, some days I say, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. I, I was one of those kids. I loved to read novels. I was a good student. I was a, a good hockey player. I was in band. I mean, when I was in band, I was probably sitting there imagining, oh, you know what? Maybe one day I'll I'll be a professional. I played the clarinet, so uh, it wasn't even that exciting. But I thought, oh, maybe one day I'll be in a symphony. Uh, when I was playing baseball because I played baseball too. I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe one day I'll be in the MLB, um, in the major leagues. So I think that I was a, a bit of a, a dreamer in the sense that whatever I was doing, if I was enjoying it, well, maybe that's an option. And they tended to be things, you know, I, I was never doing any engineering. So, I, you know, if, if I was sitting in math class, I was probably just thinking, what does an engineer do? <laughs> you know? um, uh, but there was never any one career that Oh yeah, I'm going to be that for sure. And and even today, I always I think of this as if I ever am truly not enjoying it, like if it's ever truly a grind and I'm not enjoying supporting our customers and I'm not enjoying working with our team for whatever reason and I'm and I'm 
I mean, I enjoy helping the customers and working with their team so much that it's hard to imagine a case where this would happen. But, but if, you know, if, if it ever gets to the point where it's truly a grind and I'm not enjoying it, and it's not, it's not a worthwhile activity and that, and that drags on, I guess I would probably look at doing something else. But it just seems in this industry that's, that's hard to fathom how you wouldn't enjoy helping your customers and, and you wouldn't enjoy working with the, with the team that you've got. I mean, we've got a great team at Trocia Motors. So, um, but I guess my point is that I've kind of learned by, by trying a few different things. I mean, I've studied engineering, I've studied economics, I've, I've worked at a consulting firm and seen a, a few different industries and a few different companies and spent some time in them, the oil industry, uh, the mining industry, which are, those are some of the big, big industries up in Canada as well. If you don't love it, if you're not passionate about it and you're not enjoying it, it's hard to succeed in the long term. And so for me, I kind of always try to keep a gauge on, am I passionate about what I'm doing? Am I loving what I'm doing? Because in the long run, if you really aren't passionate about something and you really don't love it and you're not enjoying it, I don't think you'll have the, the fortitude to to go through the tough times, to to get through the tough days, to to to, to, to keep working on those those long-term problems that you're trying to solve. I think I'll be in the industry long-term just because I've been in it five and a half years, and like I said, not a single day that I haven't wanted to go to work. But even now, I I, I don't know that I see myself as I don't know that I see myself as destined to be a farm equipment dealer or anything like that. I think it's just. I'm enjoying it. I'm committed to our, our customers and our team, and I, I enjoy supporting them, and, and it, it's working. <laughs> yeah, I, I've told people that once you get in into it, it's pretty tough to leave it. Yeah, the people absolutely. people are great. The, the, the work is interesting and very dynamic t- today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The customers are... It's got the, here's what farm equipment dealers and farming has right now. Here's what they've got going that's so interesting. You've got this mix of old and new. So you've got old school values still with a lot of the customers. Um, you know, not quite still at the handshake back of the napkin, but almost, right? I mean, we have to write a little bit more sophisticated contracts now just because of you know, processing the paperwork and warranty and all that. But you're still dealing with friends, families, people that are in your local community, people that have been in your local community for, you know, going back to generations. So you've got this old school values in the industry. Um, Predominantly, and I mean, it, it, there's there's more corporate farms, and the manufacturers are getting bigger, and the dealers are getting bigger. But there's still that a, a large, that old school feeling is still there. But you've got technological advancements that are happening as rapidly as almost any industry in the world. I mean, you know, you talk about cars driving on GPS, or well, we've had that longer than people have been doing that in their cars. Um, precision farming, looking at the data and making better decisions based on crunching a bunch of data. Autonomous farm equipment, which is probably going to be coming pretty soon. I mean, the, the technology and the uh, rate of change of the industry is, uh, is exciting. And so you've got this interesting mix of the old and the new, where you've got the old school values, but yet the ch- exciting changes in technology and, and the business more generally. So I, I, I like that mix because, I mean, if it was just old school and we were still, you know, we had the horse pull and the, the plow. I, that might be a little boring. I, but I do like old school values. But at the same time, I mean, hey, I, I'm an engineer. I'm a numbers guy. I, 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 you know, I like computer programming. I like working in Microsoft Excel. I like big data. Those, those trends fascinate me. Uh, I like seeing how our industry is involved in them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So it, 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 it's pretty cool right now. So we're at we're an event here, Western Equipment Dealers Association. There's a lot of very intelligent, smart 
businessmen out here, right? Through your exposure to where you've gotten today is very much different than, than a lot of people. Ivy League, um, Rhodes, McKinsey and yeah. Company. What, what's one way that maybe you approach the strategic thought and approach to the business that might be different than the rest of the industry? Oh, I don't know that, that we're doing it any different than the other dealers. I know what I brought to our own business, which was different than what we used to do. And that was really diving into the analytics and, and trying to get the strongest fact base that we could for making our decisions. There's a lot of dealers that are, are doing that, and I think a lot of farmers that are starting to do that. But at our dealership, I mean, again, it comes kind of back to that mix of that old and new. So my dad, old school guy, he's a smart guy, and he was trained as an accountant, so he can do the numbers when he wants. But, but what's important to him is the customer and the people, and he's you know really strong on his relating to people and, and, and caring for people and, and making sure they're taken care of. So sometimes, though, that's what he focuses on because that's what's really important to him. And so the decisions that get made are um, maybe weighted a little bit too heavily to making sure everybody feels good about the decision. And uh, not that he can't do the analytics, but just that's kind of what, what matters to him. You know, if we, you know I, I laugh. If my dad could run the dealership, if, if you gave my dad a deal and said, your dealership will be open for the next 100 years, you're only going to take home a salary. The business isn't going to make any money. You're going to take home a salary, but you're going to, your doors will be open. You, you'll never go bankrupt. And your customers, you'll be able to take care of your customers. And you'll be able to take care of your staff. My dad would take that deal. For sure he would. <laughs> My dad, money doesn't motivate him. He just wants to see the customers taken care of and the staff taken care of. And the only challenge is that my dad, one thing I didn't mention about him, but he's, he's an, an eternal optimist. So he, uh, he doesn't worry about those downtimes. Ah, we'll get through them. We'll get through them, right? So um, I think that what I brought was a little bit more of an analytic approach saying, okay, I absolutely agree. I, I, we have to take care of our customers and we have to take care of our staff. Those things are absolutely the two most important things in the business. But we've got to look at the numbers a little harder here. We've got to you know, manage our used equipment a little bit more tightly. Our margins, you know, our, our parts inventory, our, our, our shop efficiency. We've got to run the business just a little bit more like a business to make sure that when those tough times hit, you know, we've got enough equity, we've got enough cash to, to make it through and, and be here for the customers and the staff for 100 years. Um, because if we, if we only always focus on the customers and staff and we don't, for, we don't focus on the financial piece of the business ever, then we might get surprised when, when those tough times hit. Remember 2002, as I talked about earlier, which was, was that drought, and, and we were almost surprised, and, and we lost a lot of money, and we, we came very close. And many other dealers in Western Canada did come close or, or did shut down at that time. And so we came very close to that as well, and I remember that. And so I, when I came back, especially with the risk of the new building, right, you're, you're investing $5 million, so that was on my mind. I thought, you know what, we, just, we have to do this right because if we take too much risk on here uh, and, and get too big too fast and, and grow too fast and we don't look at the facts and plan appropriately based on, you know, there will be another drought. You know, interest rates will go up. The commodity prices will go down at some point. And if we don't, you know, plan for those facts and, and try to anticipate when they may be coming, then we, we might get a, find ourselves surprised again. And I just wanted to make sure that didn't happen. So I, I don't think that that's, that is different than a lot of the, the, the dealers are doing out there. But it was, it was maybe a bit of a change for our dealership. We, we needed to, to 
to change with the times just a little bit, right? I mean, it's, it's too big of a game now as a farm equipment dealer to just be the handshake back of a napkin guy and, and not think about where, you know, trends are going, where the industry might be in 20 years and the analytics that are coming in. And uh, so that's kind of my role at the dealership is to try to bring some of that new to the dealership, but at the same time, not get in the way of or stifle or, or discount the, the value of the old school values that my dad brings, the relationships, the commitment to the customer, the, the passion, the, the, the care for the team. And mixing those is the challenge of our industry. It's, it's something that we try to get right. We think we do a good job, but even you know, some, some meetings where we're talking about, okay, what's the right thing to do here? Um, sometimes that answer isn't quite clear uh, on, on how you balance you know, change and, and technological change and, and, and changing ways of doing business, but not throw out the, what, what made you special for 72 years, right? When you look ahead, you're up on the mountain looking at the yeah. what's ahead what what keeps you up at night the most what what causes you the most worry or concern i think for us the big question and, and a lot of these themes they're interrelated as you'll, you'll see as i answer this but for us the big question in the long term is how long can we be a single store and how long can we maintain the key aspects of what makes us different, which is that family-owned feel, that care for the customer, um, you know, relationships. How, how long can we keep that as our strength in the changing world? And, and if we have to change, if we have to buy another location, if we have to buy a second store or a third store, how do we keep that special part of our brand but grow in locations and size if we have to because because i think there are economies of scale that are putting pressure on our industry right i mean the farmers are consolidating in our area and i, I mean i think they are across the continent but certainly in our area they are you know um at some the average farm size in alberta might be two thousand acres right now but in 20 years it might be ten thousand acres the amount of combines that you have to have for available for sale or take on trade from these big farms if you want to get their business is is growing i mean already there are certain big corporate deals that exist in our area where we're looking at it going okay if we get that deal we got to take five combines on trade from one customer you know we only sell you know 10 new combines a year 30 used combines a year out of our store which is a lot for a single store but you know all of a sudden you start to look at these big multi deals and you go okay there's economies of scale there that are putting pressure on us to get bigger, right? To, divide, to diversify our market, to work through the used equipment. I mean, we see it with, with the big public companies that are in our backyard, Rocky Mountain Equipment and Service. So how long can we, those, those pressures to scale up are, are there. Um, and then and, and there's lots of other economies of scale that provide pressures um, that I could list, but they're, they're there. But what makes us special, what's been our advantage, you know, the reason that we grew from six employees to 2000, to, in 2002 to 40 today, um, what makes us special is that customer focus, that family feel, that you know, commitment to our staff that I think is harder to provide as you get really big. It, it's not impossible. So how do we do that? How do we meet the pressures from these economies of scale 
but still compete and win? I think that's a, a question that is, is hard because I've seen, I've seen other dealers try and, and fail. I've seen, I've seen some do it and succeed, and, and it depends. There's a, there's a lot of things that go into it, and uh, it's, it's hard to get right. So that's, yeah, that, would be, that would be the big challenge. We'll take a quick break here to share another important project in the farm equipment industry. It's time now to celebrate our industry at its best. We're soliciting nominations right now for Farm Equipment's annual Dealership of the Year program. This yearly program recognizes both large multi-store and small store ag equipment dealers that are leading the way in best practices, operations management, and customer care. Nominate an industry best dealership today at www.farm-equipment.com doy or email me at kschmidt at lestermedia.com. And now back to our interview. I'm starting to see lots of people come back into the industry with that similar skill set. People that maybe 15 years ago in Western Canada might have went into the oil patch because they would have looked at egg and had the same thought that I did, which is, oh man, there's no money in this. This is just a recipe for frustration. I'm actually seeing a lot of, a lot of young people that with some pretty high-end uh, abilities um, and, and pretty highly ambitious saying, hey, ag's the place to go. And, you know, it was like Devin Dubois... Uh, you know, I've seen him speak a couple of times. He he impresses me. Uh, you know, I think he's he's really on top of those analytical trends and those, the precision egg business. Uh, but even in even locally, one of my my friends, um, he's on my beer league hockey team. He's an engineer. He he only went away for four years, studied engineering, and he started in the oil patch. And a couple of years in, he came back to the family farm, and now he's farming almost 10,000 acres with his dad. And the approach that he takes to the business is very analytical. He's a smart guy. And he's he's looking at you know how can I how can I improve my farm how can I how can I make this farm sustainable and successful for the long run and and he sees opportunity there so I I'm seeing it in, in pockets you know it's certainly not like the days where you know the kid goes off to college and that's the last you see of him and he, he never comes back to the farm I think there's a lot of people that are seeing the opportunity and I also also think they see that that technological change that I talked about and they're excited by that you know they they see the trends in analytics and, and big data and the opportunity to do something kind of cool and exciting. I mean, you can be a computer programmer and you come back and find a spot at some of these big dealerships, I think. Um, you, can, you, know, you can be a business analyst who's trained in analytics and, and financial accounting and, and you can find a spot at the dealership because there's a, there's a lot of numbers if you really want optim- to start optimizing things, you know, inventories and parts inventories and sales there's a lot of numbers that can be crunched and and you can really make an impact so especially especially as the dealerships get bigger and the scale gets bigger and the farms get bigger so i'm seeing lots of young people that are ambitious and and talented come back in into the industry uh you know um and it's it's exciting it's it's fun to to come to a conference like this and meet them and or to to talk to them on the phone or to to just learn from them so, yeah, I mean, I think it's important. I agree with John that it's important that those people come back. And, and I think we are starting to see, to see them come back. It's a sophisticated industry now in many ways. And may, Big I, decisions are being yeah. made. Yeah, like, I guess here's a good part of the story. So, I mean, you, you laid out my background. I say, yeah, I worked hard, received a hockey scholarship, won the road scholarship, headed off from Princeton to Oxford, worked for McKinsey, and all that got me the same job that I had in high school. <laughs> 
right? I moved, actually, literally, this is literally true. My wife hates it when I tell this part of the story, but when I first moved back, I moved back into my parents' basement. So at age, what was it, 2000? At age 29, or maybe it was 28, I quit McKinsey, high energy, high ambition job in downtown Calgary, and I moved back into my parents' basement, started working at the dealership, same job I had in high school. And so I can tell that story in that manner, and it, it, it's a... Uh, it, it, people say, oh, well, you, you, know, you decided to get off the treadmill, you decided to shut, shut down your ambition, and, and they can see that negatively. But I, I have never felt that it was that at all. I, I, I never regretted the decision for a second. It was so easy to make. It was just so clear in my mind after thinking about it for a while that that's where I needed to be, that they needed the help. And, and not only that, because there's another way I can tell the story. Another way, another way I can tell the story is that, yeah, I, I went back to the family business and my direct competitors are publicly traded companies on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Rocky Mountain Equipment, Service Equipment, those are big public corporations. And I, we, as a family business, are in direct competition with big public corporations. So all of a sudden you start to think about what's involved in strategy and competition and, and managing a business that's going up head-to-head with you know, big conglomerates. And all of a sudden that doesn't look too far removed from being a business consultant, you know, working with, you know, big, big companies, right? I mean, it's, the competition's intense, the, the stakes are high, the, the amount of work involved is, and, and capital, the amount of work and capital involved is, is, is pretty, <laughs> pretty big numbers. And then when you think about the story that way, it's, it's almost a seamless transition. So it's, uh, and that's how I've always felt about it. I mean, the challenge, um, the challenge of of running a family business. I mean, and I'm, you know, my dad still is the is the primary owner. I'm not yet an owner, so I'm I'm working more with my dad's business than than mine per se. But hopefully, maybe one day some of it's mine as a partner. But when your own chips or your family's chips are in the pot, boy, it's a whole nother level of business. I mean, I was a consultant, right? You know, at the end of the day, I got a paycheck. At the end of the day. It wasn't my money that we were making decisions for. But now it's both the closest thing to my money it can be, and it, there's a lot of money at stake. And uh, I, I think that the learning that I've done that's, that's been afforded to me in coming back, in helping to make decisions that are literally worth millions of dollars uh, on a day-to-day basis, um, that you learn a lot about business when, it, when, when the stakes are high and it's, it's, it's your own chips in the pot. And so I think I've probably learned, McKinsey was great, I learned a ton about business at McKinsey, but this experience has probably helped me get you know, even closer to, to what it, you know, it, it truly means to, to run a business, right? I mean, my dad's still the GM, he's still running it, but we're, we're making a lot of decisions together. And, and I, I think that that's an experience I wouldn't have been able to replicate as a consultant. It's been good. I mean, my dad, I talked a little bit about his skill set earlier. Him and I are very different. So I am the analytical numbers guy. I'm a little more introverted, not maybe as, uh, I'm not the, the center of attention socially when, when I'm in a room, whereas my dad loves, loves to be the center of attention. So we're actually a good mix. You know, not that he doesn't have those analytical skills. I mean, hey, he's, he can do numbers, so he was gonna be an accountant. But he doesn't love diving into an Excel spreadsheet the way I can love diving into an Excel spreadsheet. So coming home and kind of helping to offset you know, ba- to balance his skill set, and but but bring the analytical side into focus at our dealership as well. It's been a, pr- a pretty good mix most of the time. I mean, hey, there's sometimes where we disagree and it can get in- intense, but we're both just trying to get to the right decision. And I mean, I think that 
having that mix between him and I helps us achieve our goals. Because at our at our dealership, we have we we have three core goals. Um, we've kind of outlined them in the last few years and defined them and put them on paper. And the the first one is to provide outstanding customer service. The second one is to be a great team, and the third one is to be financially sustainable. And my dad, I mean, it's in his instincts to to work to work on the first two. I mean, customer service and and making sure the team uh, feels feels good about what they're doing and is working together and is enjoying their their work is always been has always been important to him. And the financially sustain, sustainable piece has just something that he's always thought, oh yeah, we'll, we'll be fine. You know, as long as we as long as we do number one and two, we'll be fine. Um, but because I said he's a little bit of an optimist too, uh, that's, I mean, you have to be an optimist to be a farm equipment dealer. If, if you look at the returns on being a farm equipment dealer over the last 50 years, I mean, and nobody but an optimist could stay in the business. If you were, if you were purely analytically driven, which, you know, sometimes I can slip into that. If you were just crunching the numbers, you probably would exit the business. So his optimism is, is, has kept us in the business, but sometimes you, sometimes you do need that analytical voice to just cut through some of the either the the emotion or the um or the euphoria or the optimism and sometimes you need somebody to say hey you know what we do have too much used equipment <laughs> we we gotta we gotta sell some of this used equipment we we can't just let it pile up hoping it sells next year so the balance is is good because i think that probably i'm i i mean i care about our customers and our staff deeply but i'm not you know that doesn't exude from me. I'm, I'm kind of quiet and, and introverted. So um, uh, sometimes, you know, we're, we we balance each other out, and I think that's important to our leadership group. But you know, I got there through probably you know more on the hard work side of things than I'm no prodigy. I guess is the way to put it. Certainly, certainly not on the ice. I mean, I was a fourth line, third line plug, <laughs> and and even in class, even in the classroom. I mean, more of my success in the classroom is, is hard work than than just natural ability. I mean, I met some prodigies at Princeton, and yeah. when you meet them, they, <laughs> they're in a category of their own, but I was not in that category. I mean, for me, it was, it was more hard work, but it, uh, it's funny, like you come back to Alberta, and uh, I noticed this even in the oil patch. In Alberta, in Western Canada, we don't, we don't put a lot of stock in what school you went to and, uh, you know, who you worked for before or how good you think you are. It's, hey, what can you do for the team? Mm-hmm. How, and how are you doing today, right? Whereas, you know, maybe, uh, maybe in some of those schools, there is more put on being a legacy of that school or, or having that degree, right? And maybe, maybe it has more currency in, uh, in some of those networks, those old boys networks out east. But, but certainly back in Alberta, and, and in the farm equipment dealership, nobody, right. nobody cares that I went to Princeton. Right. <laughs> Can yeah. you give me that part? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, uh, so I'm always a little bit, I mean, uh, it was a part of my life that I really enjoyed. And, and it could have gone differently. I could have ended up in a, a different part of the, the world. Or the, or, but I'm, kinda, I'm very happy with kind of how it's turned yeah. out so far, right? So. Yeah. That's a cool story. Yeah, yeah it's good. So. This was really interesting. I was glad to do this with yeah well thanks no it was fun i i love i really like talking about our dealership my dad the industry you know i didn't i didn't talk as much about the team just to talk talking about our team and kind of some of the great things we've done did you know mike that we have won the outstanding the western producer outstanding i, I discovered that two times twice yeah so we won it in 2014 and we won it in 2017 so and i think we might even be i looked back it's been around since 2001 we might even be the only two-time winner and certainly we're one of the very, very few Agco dealers that have won it. 
I, I don't even know if there's another Agco dealer that's won it since it's been called the Western Producer Awards. So yeah, yeah so we, we have a great team and they they do a great job. Like it's um, yeah, it's funny. Like I actually can't fix anything. I can do a little bit of parts. I'm a mechanical engineer, but I'm the least mechanically inclined guy you'll ever meet. I can't I can't fix anything. I'm not even a good sales guy. I mean, that's my dad and his team. So really, it, uh, when I'm back at the dealership, I'm relying on everybody else to do a really good job of their job. And because yeah, if it was if it's just me, and if it, or if it was even 40 of me, <laughs> nothing would get fixed, and very little would get sold. So we're pretty lucky. We we do have a good team, and yeah, it's 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 and that's what makes it fun to be to be back and to be part of it. Thanks to Landis for sharing the story of Trochu Motors. And another thanks to HBS Systems for making this podcast possible. I'd love to get your feedback on the new series, so drop me a line at kschmidt at lessetermedia.com. You can subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, or TuneIn Radio. This will ensure you'll be alerted as soon as new episodes are made. Special thanks to Joe Kinsley of our multimedia department for putting this together. Until next time, I'm Kim Schmidt, signing out of Our Dealer Stories.